Hello and welcome to M20 Humanity Podcast. We bring you stories of African trailblazers. There was a young man who had defiled a young girl and this particular young man was found guilty of the particular offense of defilement and the options available to me at the time were either probation which is essentially sending him home in the care of his parents or sending him to a school of industries now a school of industries is typically an environment where young juvenile offenders will be sent away to live work study and learn a skill and they're tough environments they're not easy environments for young people so following the handing down of the sentence that he should go for the school of industries the court interpreter came to me and said the mother of the child would like to have a word with you so it's strictly not procedural to listen to um, any questions after the case has ended but i thought well it's a mother of a young child who's been defiled let me see what she has to say and the court interpreter said to me the mother of the child says what she heard was that the offender has been sent to school and she wanted to understand how is that a punishment My name is Elizabeth Nyawera Masharia Mukubi and I'm a lawyer by profession I'm an academic I work at the University of Botswana. I've been working here for uh, 12 years it is now and I'm the head of department. I've been head of department in the law department uh, since last year. And um, I live and work in Haborone, Haborone, Botswana. Uh, Haborone is the capital city of Botswana which is just north of South Africa. What does it mean for me to be the second Botswana woman to receive a doctorate in law through research? It's special to know that one can set a dream, work and achieve that dream. When I was coming up through law school, um I would aspire to be like these women who had these doctoral degrees in in law. One is the former attorney general of Botswana, her name is uh, Dr. Atalia Molokome, and one is the very famous Dr. Unity Dow, who received a doctoral degree through her work in in women's rights and upliftment of women in Botswana and now across the continent across the world. So these ladies were really leading lights when we were in law school and I I admired them very much. So it's special very special to be able to stand here and say look i did it i managed to get my doctoral degree through research yeah i remember one case of a delinquent young man who'd come in to the court and he'd been charged with some offense and he was clearly a troublemaker in the community but too young to go to jail and a little bit too old to be disciplined at home so here he was in my juvenile court 
and we had to figure out what to do with him. So after finding him guilty, which he was, I then decided, well, uh, let me see if corporal punishment will have any effect on him. And of course, Botswana still has uh, corporal punishment as part of its law for uh, these, these young men, for example. So I sentence him to corporal punishment, and a few days later, I get a call from my superior, and she says to me, well, you've sentenced corporal punishment, and because you're the magistrate who did this, either you or the doctor, uh, a doctor in this particular district has to go preside over the punishment. And I said, what? I didn't know that. And she says, yes, you have to do that. So I said, okay, fine, I'll go do that. And off I went, and the young man received four or five strokes of the cane. And I can tell you, after the first stroke of the cane, it looked so painful, I thought, really, there must be some reaction. And there was no reaction from him, none whatsoever. The second stroke elicited nothing. The third stroke, fourth stroke, after which I thought to myself, really, I don't really know if this punishment is effective at all for this young man. And that remained with me for a really long time because I thought if corporal punishment is not effective, we really must be thinking about other options to get young men like these delinquent young men to change their behavior. So some of the highlights of my research, and I think maybe I could focus on this area of juvenile justice, were that in some countries they have models of juvenile justice that have a more community-based approach where the offender is made to meet the consequences of his actions in the community and with the community so that you do not have the victim and their mother in court just to give evidence and then that's it. Uh, so the victim will give evidence, the mother will be sitting at a distance there because there's nothing she's going to say. But you have more of victim participation in order to enable healing, if not to be done, at least to begin. And people to be able to really speak about how the crimes have impacted them or their loved ones. I know in many, many places, victim impact statements and this kind of victims' charters, etc., are part of the criminal justice system. But this is an area where Botswana could really take many, many steps forward. So that's one of the themes that I learned. So I'm married. I got married in 2005, and my husband's name is Nami, and he's a wonderful husband and father. We have seven children, and people always ask him, all of them are yours. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a Kenyan lady, born in Kenya, and I moved to Botswana at the age of 18. And I came here because my mother had taken a job. So I stayed here, finished my degree, went away for a stint uh, for masters, but I came back. I came back and lived here and then got married here. I fell in love with a Motswana um, man. Um, I've since naturalized, so I'm a Motswana citizen and I do speak Setswana. And if you ask my husband, he taught me all the Setswana I know, but truth is that I learned Setswana in the courts and it was wonderful because once I started working in the court um, I would observe my interpreter, court interpreter and the court clerk and everybody in the room laughing at various things 
and I would feel left out and I didn't like that feeling. So I'll give you one example. One time we had an accused person come in and he really wasn't disputing that he had stolen a beast, a, a, a cow in the bush. And he started to explain what had happened. So they got hold of this animal, him and his accomplices, and they killed it and skinned it. And since they were in the bush, but they were hungry, the first thing they needed to do was to eat. So they then opened it right up and got the good bits, you know, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and they lit a fire. And the way he explained how they cooked these bits of the animal, I mean, the court was in tears. People were laughing. And I thought to myself, this is really a pity. I have to wait for a translation to understand why everybody is so amused. And that was when I took the decision that I'm going to take this seriously because there's contemporaneous interpretation. I have to try to make sure that I put things together so that I understand. And that was the beginning of my journey of learning to learn about Um, so in 2013, our daughter, who was just about to turn one, fell sick. We were not sure what was wrong with her. She just wasn't picking up weight. And one morning, we got up. She'd had a rough night. She'd been vomiting. And she, when we got up, she was wet. Her, her whole outfit that she slept in was, was wet, covered in, in urine. And I said to my husband, we have to go to the doctor. And we drove her quickly to the doctors, and she was admitted. They had run all these tests on her. I mean, she spent a few nights in ICU, which was, was harrowing, just harrowing. And they'd run tests on her, and one morning, I went into the ICU where she was, and the doctor says that your daughter's diabetic. And this was, it's a moment you can't forget. It changes your world. It changes how you think about life. There was a shift in me that day. Our job now was to quickly get to grips with what we needed to do to support this child. She was one year old and you go home with injections, pens with insulin in them and you have to inject a one year old and you can imagine, you know, it just goes contrary to what any parent would want to do. And I remember my sister organizing a conversation for me with another parent of a diabetic child whom she worked with. And the parent was very clear. He said, look, the best thing you can do for yourself and for a child is to quickly mourn the past and accept the new normal. So we took the advice and got to grips with diabetes. And our daughter settled down, we managed to control her sugars. A few years later, three years later, our oldest son was diagnosed with diabetes when he was 10. It's very difficult to explain what that felt like. 
there was a moment there where I thought, maybe God has abandoned me. There have been some positive things that have come out of having diabetes in the home. And one of the things I can attest to is that you are able to see empathy and courage in your children. Courage, first of all, in children who have to inject themselves multiple times a day. I mean, if you or I had to inject ourselves multiple times a day, if you think about that, what would that be like? Even the thought of it might make you feel uncomfortable, but they display courage by doing this without complaining. Empathy. The other children support them if they're feeling unwell, if they need help. I mean, now, if one of my kids doesn't remember to do their insulin shot, I can rely on the other child, the older children, to supervise. Then you, you have a community of support. It's a gospel song. I really love it. Um, it says, trust in your father who knows all things. He takes care of you in all your troubles. Don't cry. Trust in God. <laughs> I run an institute called uh, the Institute for the Family Trust, and I do this in collaboration with a lady called Dr. Antonia Bossi. And we are three uh, trustees of this particular organization. And we have various projects under this organization. Uh, they are a girls club, which is a leadership club for girls aged 8 to 12. And our girls club has girls who are some younger than 8. Um, and that's because little sisters like to tag along. And we, we think it's really important that little sisters tag along and we try to uh, diversify activities to include all our girls. So effectively what we do is we meet once a month for a fun activity and during that particular fun activity we have an opportunity to have a talk where we will speak to the girls about various um, aspects of, of leadership. Um, what we have found with the club is that first of all the girls love to come because they make friends with girls who are their age and that's always nice. And secondly, we try to make the activities lots of fun. So for example, we'll do baking, we'll do uh, making chocolate mousses and that kind of thing. We'll do sewing. Sometimes we do like IT netiquette, we'll do table setting. And uh, we also have parenting classes. And then uh, this developed into a preschool project. So we are running a preschool called Mutse Muteo Preschool. And Mutse Muteo means home, is the foundation and what we'd like for our parents in our school to know is that we would love to support their parenting at home through what we're doing at school one of the poems that i like it's actually a verse out of a song my mother would sing when she was in school and she always repeats it to us and i've pinned it up here in my in my office on the wall and it's by a guy called Norman McLeod. And the words are, Courage, brother, do not stumble, though thy path be dark as night. There's a star to guide the humble, trusting God 
and do the right. Mentors are really important in our lives. I really admire my mom. My mom was courageous, courageous woman. I mean, she came to this part of the world on her own. My mother moved from Kenya to Botswana in 1995. Um, she'd been offered a job here and was thinking about it for a long time, whether she would come here to the University of Botswana, the very organization I work for now, <laughs> interestingly enough. And she thought about it for a very long time. And finally, you know, with my father's help and permission, was able to take that step to come out here. And I think she's told us that she decided she's going to come for a year just to see, because, you know, she's a mom and had responsibilities as home, at home as well. Um, and she took that step, which maybe any other person, another person might not have been so courageous to take. So I really do admire that. And she always taught us, you know, the secret to success is hard work. My mother would say, you know, we have no godfathers, you know. There's no one we're going to call to make it happen for you, you know. You have to work. Let the road be dark and dreary and its end far out of sight. Face it bravely, strong or weary. Trust in God and do the right. I love it. <laughs> Many times people ask, um, how do you do it? How do you manage seven kids and your academic pursuits and your work? What's, what's the secret? And my answer really is that I have a lot of help. I have a lot of help. I, I'm a realist and I, I don't ever want to present to fellow women the idea that uh, perfection is, is possible. I think you can approximate perfection, but I think it's always a struggle for balance. What have I learned along the way? You have to know yourself. You have to know what's important to you. And for me, family has been very important. I always feel any decision for family is the right decision. Now, some people may view that as backwards, especially, you know, in the professional world, but I'm proud to say it. A decision for family is the right decision, right? Um, I read somewhere the other day, someone says, you have to say an inner yes to reality. And a lot of women don't say yes to reality. You know you have a child on the breast and you still want to be doing something else that's completely the opposite of, of where you are at that particular moment. You've got to slow down. It's time for the baby. Maybe next year will be time for that other project that you want to do. So I've decided to allow myself to take decisions that support the family. And sometimes that might mean something that looked really wonderful professionally. Maybe it's not time for that. And that's okay. And it has to be okay. And the only person who can make it okay is you. So you have to know what you would like. You have to know what matters to you. I have a lot of help. I have a supportive husband. He's very hands-on. He cooks, cooks several meals per week. Um, we have help in the homes, which a lot of women outside of the continent, perhaps this is not a reality. So that's why I say 
don't compare your situation with that of somebody else. It might not really be the same. And sometimes women also want to compete, if I can use that word, on the same level with peers who are men. But the demands on your time and the demands of your heart in relation to your children and your family, maybe they don't draw you all the same way. So balance is achieved by knowing yourself and saying yes to what is real and chasing what's achievable. M20 Humanity Podcast, bringing you stories of African trailblazers.